Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, we encounter some somewhat provocative but very important language for our spiritual lives with circumcision of the heart. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. The message for this morning is entitled Circumcision of the Heart. And I realize that I've, I've heard that term a bunch, I've talked about that term a bunch. Um, that term may be a little odd and awkward and uncomfortable for, uh, for some out here. And I realize that maybe it's a benefit that we're a bunch of guys here talking about circumcision this morning, although then I remembered that those who will be joining us online, including maybe my mother, there may be some women. So. We'll try to handle this topic delicately, and the point is not to provoke or, or be provocative, uh, but, but God's Word is provocative in this way, using language uh, that is very intentional and very powerful. And hopefully we'll see how uh, this act of circumcision plays a very important lesson, or a very important role in our lives as followers of Christ today. So... As we think about Deuteronomy chapter 10, as always, we bring up our very familiar map. And I think at this point, you'll be able to close your eyes and draw this map if someone said, can you show me what's happening and where the Israelites are now in their journey? Because for the entire book of Deuteronomy, they are camping out to the east of the Jordan River in an area known as the Plains of Moab. This is a territory that God had given them victory over their enemies, and so they've been camping out here for an extended period of time, and they are on the cusp of crossing over the Jordan River and entering into and taking possession of the best part of the promised land that God had promised Abraham many, many years before. So this is uh, really very exciting. As we've said, the purpose of the book is to remind God's covenant people of his covenant promises and their covenant commitments before entering the promised land. or I'm giving Dale, Dale South credit for this, whether or not he actually said it, it's okay. It's going down in the book, says, the final pep talk to prepare God's people to take possession of the promised land. So um, it's very much of a covenant renewal, much like the renewing of wedding vows that a couple will do. This is God having his people and renewing the vows that he has reminded his people that they are to commit to and reminding them of his commitment to them as his chosen people. And this week we have a strong focus on remembrance, which is why we're turning to our secondary theologian each week and looking at Winston Churchill's very helpful comment and quotation that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I do think that, I've heard it said well, God's people need to be reminded more than instructed. I can say that that is true in my own spiritual life. I will think, why did I forget that? Because I need to be reminded. I don't always need new instruction from God's word. When it comes, that's great. But often I need to be reminded of the instruction that I have already heard to help me walk as a faithful disciple with Jesus Christ. So our structure for this morning from Deuteronomy 12 and the first part of 11, or sorry, Deuteronomy 10 and the first part of 11 is requirements, remembrances, and reasons. So um, let's start with the requirements. Um, and we will start in chapter 10, verse 12. And 
uh, as, we, as we think about uh, ourselves and we think about the Israelites, hear these words that God has spoken through Moses and allow those to minister to you in this moment. Very challenging words here. Verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord uh, require of you? Another way to translate require is what does he ask of or ask for you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So a few observations about these requirements. Uh, They are listed out five in number. We have fearing God, which refers to that reverential awe that we are to experience when we think about God and his holiness and his majesty and his perfection. And we think about ourselves as those who are sinful in need of forgiveness in relationship with him. Fearing God. Other ways that this word is translated, even in this passage, are uh, awesome, are terrifying. Walking in his ways, that is living a life that is consistent with his character, obeying his truth and surrendering to his commands. Uh, Love him. Loving God, that heartfelt commitment to be a person of surrender, whereby we are willingly, even when it's difficult, obeying the commandments of God. Serving Him with your whole heart. This was not to be a, God is in this corner of my life and I I will operate the other parts of my life apart from Him. This was to be a, a full commitment where God is over serving God in every way with our whole heart. And then finally, keeping the commandments. Uh, That word keep in other parts of scripture almost has the connotation of guarding and protecting. That is where uh, the importance of obedience becomes very apparent. And the benefit of all this we read, guys, is that Moses says that these requirements of fearing and walking and loving and serving and keeping are for the good of the Israelites. That's because God is a good God and he has proven his goodness by delivering them from the land of slavery in Egypt, taking them through the Red Sea, providing them water when they needed it, providing them food when they complained about it, and then providing deliverance from their enemies, which would continue as they make their march into the promised land. So this was all for the good of the people, trusting God because he is good. Uh, Peter Craigie, who is a commentator who's written a very good commentary on Deuteronomy, has this to say about these requirements. In broad terms, the common theme is allegiance to the God of the covenant. The requirements stated in 10, 12, and 13 indicated the positive nature of the total commitment to the one God. This is fascinating to me. Of the five requirements listed, love for God is central the central one. The meaning of the various requirements is elaborated in the verses that follow. And so what we find in the verses that we'll look at now is that Moses is unpacking this miniature sermon to the people of Israel about the importance of these requirements and why God can be trusted. I'm reminded as I think about these words from these first two verses of a passage that we looked at just a few weeks ago from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, also known as the Shema. Familiar words, maybe. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Uh, Do you see some of those common themes and those connections to the importance of loving God, keeping his commandments, serving him with your whole heart? Now, what's fascinating as we read on is how gracious God is. Reading on verses 14 and following. uh, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. How fascinating to think that God is the sovereign God over heaven and the the heaven of heavens, which doesn't mean that there's another level of heaven. It means God is sovereign over all creation, all that is seen. And yet out of his grace and out of his goodness, he sets his heart to love Abraham and his descendants, to cherish cherish them and be faithful to them as his chosen covenant people. That's fascinating to me that God could have, who owns and is sovereign over all creation, chooses this subset of the creation unto which he can share his loving kindness with. And when we look at a lot of the disposition of these people, i.e. also ourselves, uh, we find it amazing that God would choose to do that, knowing just how rebellious they would be, just how many times they would complain against him and try to almost usurp his kingship over them because of their sin. And yet he still remains faithful to them. Next, and when we find that his activity is grounded in his love and his faithfulness to his people. Now we get to uh, this very interesting language in verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That word stubborn we talked about last week. It means stiff-necked. It means hard-headed. But now God gives this commandment of circumcising the foreskin of your heart. I will say it quite obviously. The heart is not the organ that we normally associate with circumcision, is it? So it's somewhat provocative that God would use this language. And he uses this language a number of times throughout the Old Testament. And as we'll get to eventually, this language translates into the New Testament. Verse 17, uh, for the Lord... Your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. The word there, uh, not partial, could also be translated literally, uh, he does not lift away or take away faces. It means God uh, does not say one thing and then quickly turn away to mean something else. So as we think about God and his character and he gives this injunction, this commandment to his people to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts, I think that we do well to, if we can, embrace maybe maybe a little bit of the discomfort and the awkwardness of this term and talk about the importance of circumcision with God's people in the relationship that he has with them. Because circumcision was actually a very important part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. We see this in Genesis 17, verses 10 through 11, where God is communicating with Abraham about his promise 
that Abraham would receive this promised land. He would receive many descendants and he would be a blessing and receive blessing. And we find that God did put a requirement upon Abraham and his descendants. And that requirement was that Abraham and his male descendants would need to be circumcised. And the circumcision for all newborns would happen on the eighth day. But God says these words and speaks these words to Abraham in Genesis 17, 10 and 11. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So a a few thoughts to unpack here, guys, as we embrace this interesting language. And it's fascinating uh, to think, first of all, that uh, this act of circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God was making with Abraham. And as we look at the different covenants of the Bible, the covenants often were accompanied with a sign, a visible reminder of God's promise and the people's promise to remain faithful in response. So uh, we think about the covenant with Noah. Does anybody know what the sign was that God provided as a reminder of that covenant? A rainbow, right. Uh, We have here the covenant with Abraham and the sign there was circumcision. We have even the covenant with David. The sign there would be uh, someone to rule on the throne. Uh, for David, uh, as a descendant of David's for uh, all of time. So God provides these signs as a physical reminder of this deeper spiritual reality that was to speak of the importance of the covenant. And this was an act of obedience that Abraham and his male descendants would have to take on. Now, interestingly, God will say that anyone who does not, every male who chooses not to be circumcised is intentionally cut off from the community. So there is intentional language here that essentially says, choose to either be cut or be cut off. And that's that's some of the wordplay of the Hebrew that works itself into this language. Now, this is all a bit of a medical aside here as I was reading up on this, because I wondered of all the things that God could have chosen as a sign and all of the acts that God could have chosen to have Abraham's male descendants take part in, why this act of circumcision? And um, it's very interesting as you, as you look into the, the benefits of this from a medical standpoint, uh, it is actually a, a very clean way for, um, for the male body to operate. It reduces the, the amount of bacteria in that part of the body. And so in a sense, it was a reminder of a, of a cleansing that would come as God has created this faithful covenant with Abraham and people would respond to that. Uh, Even the injunction and command to circumcise on the eighth day before anesthesia was available, uh, medically it has been proven that the level of vitamin K that is produced in the, the male baby in that part of the body is at its height at the eighth day. Any circumcision before that day uh, would lead to hemorrhaging that would be difficult to heal. It's just amazing that God, even in his sovereignty and omniscience and knowledge of medical technology before we even knew about it, would make this commandment and then would have that be on the eighth day. Uh, But one writer says or writes that one of the most uh, significant aspects of circumcision is the promise 
that God would bless Abraham and his seed and make them prosperous and make them numerous like the sands on the seashore. So that meant that every time that a husband and a wife would come together in marital intimacy, there would actually be a reminder that God was, had promised Abraham, you will have many descendants. And their coming together would give the opportunity for more of those descendants to be added to Abraham's seed. I, I just think it's fascinating. Um, yes, maybe a little bit awkward to think about, but the Bible's full of awkward stuff. So we embrace the awkwardness and we say, praise be to God that he is wise and that he can be trusted. And so that's a bit of the background about why circumcision on a physical level was important in this relationship with Abraham and all of his male descendants. And because of that, all of the community. So we find in this that the physical circumcision reminded the descendants of Abraham of their collective covenant commitment to the Lord. On a spiritual level, we find that God is now using language of physical nature to apply to the spiritual lives of his people that physical circumcision referred to the inner commitment or disposition of surrender and obedience to the Lord that is necessary for one to fulfill those requirements of loving God, of walking in his ways, of serving him with your whole heart. So we, we find God applying this interesting language of circumcision to the heart because the heart is essentially to be rended and cut and surrendered in ways that allows the individual to fully commit to the covenant that God has asked them to. Um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to think about. Uh, as we get into some of the New Testament ramifications for this, we'll see how this language carries over in some very interesting and very important ways for us as followers of Jesus Christ today. So uh, Moses continues by talking about the, uh, really some of the reasons why it's so important for the Israelites to allow their hearts to be circumcised. We've already noted that God is awesome. He is not partial and he takes no bribe. We continue on in verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Uh, then the commandment of love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So uh, we find that God is calling his people to an ethic that is consistent with what God has already done. God has been generous and God has been gracious. Even though he is almighty, he has been also imminent with his people and he has been present. And he has even been present with those who are not originally part of the Israelite community to invite them in, the sojourner. And God says, be kind to them because at one point you were sojourners in a foreign land. Now invite those foreigners into your community so that you can allow them to experience a life-giving relationship with me, the one true God. Verse 20, we'll repeat some of the, uh, some of the language that we've already looked at. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Uh, this idea of holding fast is the same word that maybe we're familiar with when we read about uh, every wedding. You, you're often hearing this passage from Genesis chapter 2 that um, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to 
or cling to or hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's, that word for cleave or cling is the same word in Hebrew that's used here to hold fast. And so it's almost in this covenant relationship, almost like a marriage, the people of, of Israel and the sojourners joining them in their community were to cling to God as husband and wife cling to one another in the covenant of marriage. We continue on, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying or awesome or fear-worthy things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons. That is, when Joseph was second in command in Egypt, and he called and invited his brothers and his father Jacob and their family to come and live in Egypt, they were 70 in number. No, a large family maybe in our day, but a clan back then. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And this is showing and demonstrating God's faithfulness again to the Abrahamic covenant, to his promise to Abraham, which was to give him land, to give him many descendants and to be a blessing. In Genesis 15, 5, we read these words. And he brought him, that is, God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham and his wife Sarah, being barren and old in age, had no descendants together. And God promised you will have them as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And here that promise has been and will continue to be fulfilled. So you have a group of maybe some estimate 2 million people who are camping out on the edge of the Jordan River, ready to go into the promised land. And Moses is reminding them, see, God is faithful to his promises. You in kind allow your heart to be circumcised so that you can be faithful in response. God is trustworthy. And guys, I say a hearty amen to that. This is a good time for an amen. Amen, amen. God is trustworthy. So um, that's really the, the requirements of God. Now we move to the uh, remembrances of God here in verses one through seven of chapter 11. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge. There's our word keep again or guard. Uh, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. Uh, now, there, this word for discipline is also translated and can be translated moral instruction. Moral instruction. And so one of the remembrances is, is to remember God's moral instruction. And we find that even this is true in our lives too. I know it, at least it is in mine, that when we experience difficult times of testing, God is often disciplining us and helping to shape us to get to a place where we are more aligned and more conformed and more surrendered and availed to the Holy Spirit so that we can be more like Christ. And that was essentially very similar to the purpose why God had taken the previous generation and allowed them to die out because it was an act of discipline so that the new generation would be morally instructed and shaped 
so that they would be a more obedient people to go into the land and demonstrate who God is to the nations around them. So there is always a a purifying, a sanctifying, an instructive role that God's discipline plays. It's educational. It's meant to help teach us. And the Israelites were experiencing that. Verse 3, remember also his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, and how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued you, as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, son of Reuben and how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and their tents and every living thing that uh, followed them in their midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. And so Moses tells the Israelites, don't simply remember the moral instruction of the Lord, but remember God's miraculous redemption as well. Remember back to those days when you were in Egypt in the land of slavery and God brought you out and all that he did in the Red Sea. See Exodus chapter 14. And then remember how God even brought some disciplinary judgment upon peoples who were rebelling against him and rebelling against Moses. This would include Korah, but the names here of Dathan and Abiram are mentioned. This is from Numbers chapter 16. Remember, God's people need to be reminded more than instructed. Those who forget the past are destined to, are doomed to repeat it, right? So this is important to, for this act of remembrance to be a part for the Israelites to remember how God gave this moral instruction, but he also was involved in miraculous redemption of their lives. Um, as, we, as we think about our, our final section, we're going to be closing in on uh, maybe the first half here of Deuteronomy chapter 11. As we move to the final section, which is the, uh, the reasons Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment. Again, that word keep to guard, it's repeated again. Keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. As we think about this section, gentlemen, and we think about the section that just preceded, the the remembrance that we just looked at was looking to the past. This section is all about looking forward to the future, forward to the future where God's promises would be fulfilled and God's people would, would be able to take possession of the land. And so that's why this word take possession is repeated several times as they would take possession of this land flowing with milk and honey. It was a good land. It was a good promise. Verse 10, for the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which um, drinks water by the rain from heaven, 
a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So interestingly, God makes a comparison to the land of Egypt, which by the way, received little to no rain. It was irrigated by artificial means. And you know who is probably in charge of a lot of those artificial means and creating those different channels and systems of irrigation? It was the Israelites who probably with their feet had to start doing some manual labor at the behest of King Pharaoh and provide irrigation, man-made irrigation. And Moses says, you are entering a land where the provision for the rain comes from God himself, from heaven, and it will come in abundance provided that you are faithful. There's more on that that my friend Max will talk about next week. But we see an interesting change between the land of Egypt, which had artificial irrigation because they had no rain, and the land of Israel, the good promised land of milk and honey, which had heavenly irrigation from God himself out of his grace and goodness. Do you see some of that distinction that Moses is trying to make between where they've come from and where they're going to give them the significant confidence that God was with them. I find it fascinating looking at that last verse that God cares for this land. And uh, and this is what we can take away from that. Uh, God would pay close attention to this special gift of the promised land because he cared for it and because he cared even more for his people who would take possession of that land. So we've set up the requirements, we've set up the remembrances, and we finally set up the reasons why the people of Israel were to be faithful and to allow their hearts to be circumcised. So as we look at these applications in closing, what can we say about circumcision of the heart? I think that we can say a lot, and I'm glad that God doesn't just leave us in the Old Testament to think about what circumcision of the heart really is but we can think about it in these two principles. The first is genuine love for God will result in genuine obedience to God. When I love my wife, when I love my children, when you love your your family, when you love your neighbor, you genuinely bless them, you genuinely serve them, you genuinely put their desires before your own. And that's true of the Lord. Love was at the center of the five requirements that God had, remember, to love him. It's almost as if it's the fulcrum and the apex of those five requirements. We're reminded of this principle through the words of Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 14, verse 15, where Jesus says to his disciples and to us, because we are also his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, the interesting use of that word keep or to guard really to obey. Um, We should obey God's commandments because he can be trusted. And we should love him and allow that love to turn itself to obedience because God can be trusted. Because guys, God has given us every reason to trust him, that he is trustworthy and that he is good. That is because he has given us his very son, Jesus, to be the sacrificial lamb, to die on the cross for our sins to be raised from the dead, to ascend to heaven, to wait to return to earth one day. And if that story of the gospel and God's giving of his son and the gift of his son is not proof enough that God is worthy of our trust, then nothing ever will be. It's a gift. God is worthy of our trust. And I find that in my life, that a lack of obedience 
does not mean a lack of salvation. Now, it could for some, but if you are a Christian and you are struggling to obey, I want you to hear me on this. A lack of obedience does not mean a lack of salvation if you have trusted Christ, but it is a lack of love for God in those moments where you're choosing your kingdom over his, which me, for me happens each and every day. That is why I am grateful for the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ, because I realize I can't do this on my own, which moves us to our second and final principle of application. And that is that genuine love for and obedience to God is an inside-out operation. It's an inside-out operation. And and what what I mean is this. I can't circumcise my own heart, and neither can you. You see, spiritually speaking, not everybody has a circumcised heart. In fact, throughout pages of scripture, we read language like in Acts 7.51, where Stephen is talking to the religious leaders of, of the day in Jerusalem, ironically, religiously dead, as Stephen speaks these words, which did not go over very well. Um, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So we find that there is a condition of an uncircumcised heart, one that is unwilling to love and obey God. And we find that that was true of the religious leaders. Um, But what we find is that because this is a spiritual work, because it's an inside-out work, it's one that we're incapable of accomplishing on our own. It must only be accomplished by God and His grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. We ultimately can't circumcise our own hearts, but through the enablement and the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, this is possible. It's a miracle. We have several passages in Paul's writings which speak to this principle and this reality of a spiritually circumcised heart. In Romans 2, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, His his praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul is writing about here is a true Jew, which Jew from Judah means to praise, one who truly praises, is not one who is an ethnic descendant of Abraham per se, but one who submits to and surrenders to God's commandments. In fact, he essentially communicates, it would be better for you not to be circumcised physically but to obey the law spiritually than it would be to be circumcised physically and disobey the law spiritually. So we find that there is a spiritual disposition of the heart that Paul is writing about here. Next in Colossians 2.11, in him that is in Christ, you uh, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is made without human hands. It reminds me of when my firstborn son uh, was in the hospital, and I opted to watch the doctor circumcising him. I'm not sure why, guys, I chose to do that, but I was just curious, I guess. And uh, I remember the doctor's hands were shaking just a little bit with that scalpel as he went in for the job. And um, it, I, I, I reminded the doctor of this a few, um, you know, a little while later. He said, "No, they weren't. They were fine." I don't know, not from my perspective, doc, but. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's too much information for those viewing online. <laughs> but, but praise be to God that through faith in Jesus Christ, 
We have a circumcision that is not made with human hands. There's no room for slip up in God's spiritual work through the Holy Spirit. When we have trusted Christ upon that moment of salvation, it's a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Upon that moment of belief and salvation and trust in Christ, our hearts are circumcised. And then finally, Philippians 3.3. 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Holy Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Yes, there's a play on words there of flesh when it comes to spiritual circumcision, that our trust is not in our own strength or the world, but our trust is in Christ because we are new creations, a new circumcision through Christ and in Christ. That initial circumcision happens upon the moment of salvation, but it's initiated by the Holy Spirit and the gracious work of God in our hearts. Now we continue to allow ourselves to experience the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives through time in God's word daily, through time in prayer consistently, through time gathering in community constantly. Those disciplines allow us to experience the life that God has for us so that our circumcised hearts can remain soft, so that we will be in fuller surrender to Jesus Christ and what he commands and his desires for us as his disciples. A final quotation as we close from Kyle and Delitz. Above all, therefore, they, that is the Israelites, were to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts, i.e. to lay aside all insensibility of heart to impressions, um, to, uh, to impressions from the love of God and not to stiffen their necks anymore, i.e. not persist in their obstinacy or obstinate resistance to God. Without circumcision of the heart, true fear of God and true love of God are both impossible. That's because that genuine obedience to God and love for God is an inside-out operation. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again next week for the next installment of our journey with the Israelites through the wilderness. Until then, God bless and have a great week.